consumer brands have work to do to whip their supply chains into shape. Hi, everybody. I'm Bob Bowman, Editor-in-Chief of Supply Chain Brain, and this is the Supply Chain Brain Podcast. President Biden's executive order on reviewing critical supply chains might not have specifically called out consumer packaged goods, but CPG and consumer brands are very much a part of the equation when it comes to addressing concerns about supply chain disruptions. When the COVID-19 pandemic hit the nation and the world with full force, it was CPG that stood up and had to maintain a steady flow of product to consumers sheltering at home and ordering essential supplies online. In the process, previously hidden stress points and weaknesses became all too evident. Now that the pandemic is abating, it's time for a look at how CPG supply chains must prepare for future crises. On the show today, we discuss that need with Tom Madrecki, Vice President of Supply Chain and Logistics with the Consumer Brands Association. He'll talk about what the private sector has learned from the pandemic and what it must do now to solve long-term systemic flaws that threaten our access to vital supplies in the next big crisis. Here is my conversation with Tom Madrecki. Tom Madrecki. Welcome to the show. Looking forward to being a part of today's conversation. So I want to start out by asking you about the impact of President Biden's executive order on so-called critical supply chains. But how exactly does that impact CPG brands? What's the connection there? The Consumer Brands Association actually was very much in favor of this type of approach, even early on in the opening days of the pandemic, go back a year. What I would like to say about it is that I think that they really hit the nail on the head when it comes to a smart policy approach. And I'll tell you why. If you're going to improve the resiliency and the competitiveness of the nation's supply chains, and especially the critical ones that are sort of enumerated in that order, you have to have a really good understanding of how those supply chains currently operate. The mapping exercises that are put forward in that, the handoff to agencies to conduct a review and to make recommendations, Based on that assessment of those supply chains, I think that's a really critical step in the right direction and one that the administration should be applauded for in terms of, again, taking a smart and thoughtful policy approach when it comes to pursuing that. I'm sure CPG brands are directly or indirectly affected by most many of those so-called critical supply chains. But I'm just wondering what kind of supply chain or transportation policy could be crafted that would support CPG brands going forward? What are you looking for uh, from the standpoint of the Consumer Brands Association in terms of what comes out of this executive order? As you know, of course, the CPG industry was truly tested by covid experiencing overall growth of only 9.4% for the entirety of the year. There was that huge spike in demand in March, towards 20, 21% during this really peak panic buying mode that, that folks were in. Certainly the industry weathered that storm, but there are now a, a sort of a sea change afoot, I would say, when it comes to the state of supply chains, the future of them, how the pandemic has accelerated some, some megatrends around e-commerce penetration, even in the grocery space, which traditionally lagged. And so 
the way that I see it and in the way that I think the, the CPG industry sees it is that there are many opportunities for supply chain policy to become more strategic, for there to be greater levels and more thoughtful leadership shown by the government as it relates to how policy interacts with supply chains and how government policy can aid and assist in the development of more resilient and competitive supply chains in manufacturing a sort of base policy writ large. We actually just released a report together with the Council of Supply Chain Management Professionals in Iowa State University, where we took a an in-depth look at the many different ways that policy currently interacts with supply chains. And the way that I've always liked to talk about it is that it's not as if we are calling for more government intervention in supply chains or an expanded government role. There's, in fact, ample evidence today that government and policy interacts with supply chains, impacts them, their performance on an ongoing basis. But what you see when you take a sort of a a look at all of the different ways that policy today interacts with those supply chains, what you are left with is the impression that much of that is done in a siloed way. Sometimes it can seem haphazard. There's a a lack of integration or a lack of interagency communications at times. So you have someone in DOT doing one thing or they're looking at through their particular lens. You have someone in USDA or EPA or another agency doing something through their particular lens. And it's not necessarily laddering up to something in to a degree of like strategic deployment of that policy or in terms of what is the interaction of policy as relates to the private sector. And so I think that one of the things that we've continued to call for and that we would expect to see potentially as a result of this review of critical supply chains is that there's an opportunity for that government role to be sharpened and really clarified and for the leadership to be demonstrated in a way that puts forward smart policy recommendations, address some of the shortcomings of the current policy environment, but sort of a missed opportunity, right? So you have other countries that are uh, sort of plowing ahead, whether that's China or Singapore, Germany, others that have really crystallized what is the role of government as it relates to industrial base, as it relates to transportation. And so there's a a clear opportunity going forward for the U.S. to show that level of leadership in in an increasingly competitive global environment and to really come alongside supply chains at at this pivotal moment of transformation as companies themselves are investing in their networks, considering different opportunities that are influenced by changing consumer behavior, where they need to place their bets, um, how they can shore up workforce issues that they have when it comes to the availability of skilled labor, technical expertise. And then, of course, there's, there's a host of transportation challenges that I think you've seen over the past year that have been exacerbated by COVID. But it's not as if the truck yeah, driver yeah. shortage or port clearance times or anything like that are suddenly going to resolve themselves. Um, these are long-standing problems that have just had a light shown on them. And so, again, yeah. I think you're at this this moment in time where there's the rubber has to meet the road at some point. You got to sort of just say, like, okay, we're going to double down on this. We're going to make the right investments. We're going to have the strategy to go alongside it. Otherwise, we're going to mm-hmm. be left behind. On the private sector side, as you point out, a lot of these problems were evident already. They didn't necessarily come as a surprise. But from a private sector perspective, what did the pandemic reveal to the industry about the nature of their supply chains that maybe they didn't know before or they didn't put enough emphasis on before and maybe drives the private sector to make certain improvements now going forward with or without the government's help? What have they learned? There's two real big takeaways. One is this emphasis on resilience buzzword, certainly, that gets thrown out a lot. But especially within the CPG space, where you have low margin, high velocity products, there was an emphasis in the past, and I think rightfully so, on 
efficiency. You can go back all the way to like the sort of Toyota production model. What is the implications there from a CPG perspective? And there, there are some companies that I think really had that mindset in terms of how do they hit the margins that are required of them and meet the investors' expectations. But there is, I think, a renewed look at, and I should clarify too, that uh, resilience is not the same as replication. It's not the same as sort of you know, dupl- uh, dupl- having duplicative supply chains or losses of efficiency. But looking at it from the perspective of that risk is only going to be a constant factor going forward, that events like COVID are not necessarily black swans. I laugh at sometimes like the description of that because if a black swan event keeps happening, it's sort of by definition not a black swan anymore. And mm-hmm. so you have to have this expectation that there is going to be disruption in the supply chain. And so having the ability to respond quickly to that and those moments of disruption and get back to a normal level of output or getting back on track as quickly as possible is going to be a real point of emphasis. And it's a point of differentiation for those supply chains that are able to better meet their customer needs, both from a consumer side and as well as their retail partners. The other piece, um, this is also tied to the retail relationship as well, is of course, this growth in e-commerce. The industry estimates range essentially that COVID accelerated e-commerce penetration and growth anywhere from five to 10 years, depending on who you talk to. Of course, it, it varies by product category, certain areas, and there was already sort of strong direct-to-consumer growth. But by and large, the grocery landscape was one of like the last holdouts, if you will. People mm-hmm. order their furniture online. They order their golf clubs online. Like everything else you're willing to order online. But pre-pandemic, there was still reluctance, myself included, I liked going to the grocery store. You, you sort of, you like being able to pick out your fish or you search for your produce. Um, you add different things to the cart. You see what's on sale. But because of COVID, consumers have been exposed to a different way of doing business. They like what they see. They like the different options that are available to them, whether that is direct consumer, whether that's click and collect, whether there's all these different models that have sort of evolved out of the pandemic and been refined. And there's still a, a degree of growing pains. I don't think anyone has quite figured out yet the margins. I don't think anybody has quite figured out how to really capitalize on the access to data and the availability of information on consumer behavior and how that sort of trickles through, not just to the retailer, but to the manufacturer. Can you get really customized? Can you adapt in a really personalized way? So th- there's still a, a huge opportunity to grow and to really learn from that, especially given the fact that when we talk about accelerating five to 10 years, we're, we're talking on the magnitude of like, I want to say 1% pre-pandemic penetration of e-commerce and groceries, all of a sudden it's like 3% penetration in e-commerce. Like there's, it's not as if uh, there isn't room for e-commerce grocery to grow. In fact, it's quite large and substantial, but we see consumer behavior clearly changing. Consumers are more willing to order goods online that they weren't willing to do prior to the pandemic. And then their behavior from a grocery standpoint is also changing. So whereas before they might be making the weekly trip to the store, maybe now they're ordering once a week, twice a week, maybe even more often, dependent on on how they're shopping. And then they're making larger trips for bulkier items or just sort of like to restock household basics on a less frequent basis. And as the e-commerce environment changes and as those shopping habits change, that's going to cause a ripple effect through the supply chain, whereby consumer packaged goods companies need to really work hand-in-hand with their retail partners to have the right products on hand at the right time, 
you've already seen the various retailers roll out, um, whether it's like an inventory assurance program, or there's in the past several years, there's emphasis on on time and full metrics, other things like that. All of that, I think, is designed to foster an environment whereby the consumer is ultimately served. They're able to get the things that they want when they want them. And it's just that the consumer behavior, right, that when you having a product when you want it is increasingly flexible. And then the expectations are mounting on in terms of delivery time, speed, the fact that that delivery might have to be free. Like there's all of these other things that consumers want out of that experience. And so that'll cause consumer packaged goods companies and their retail partners to, to change how they do business. I think that the winners in that environment will be the ones that are able to, of course, adapt. But they're also going to be the ones that are uh, the most collaborative, the ones that are best able to utilize some of those data elements and other aspects of technology to create really efficient network that they're able to link with their retail partners, share information in real time, and be able to really dial in their operations. It's interesting. The growth in e-commerce also raises the question of the very future of brands, does it not? In the age of Amazon, where in many cases Amazon becomes the brand, and also you have Amazon and brick-and-mortar retailers creating more and more private labels to undercut price-wise consumer, traditional consumer brands. Do you think that consumer brands, as they now stand, face a challenge in remaining relevant to consumers going forward? I would posit that this is not the first, nor would it be the last challenge in that regard. Consumer packaged goods companies are no stranger to competition. The takeaway, if anything, from the pandemic, actually, is that consumers gravitate to these brands that they know, that they trust. And there is this sort of recognition, I think, that the product being available on the shelf, a return to products that maybe folks grew up with, there's a, a comfort in that, and that has sticking power. I don't think that the power of brands and the consumer's identification with those brands is going away. Of course, there's a likely future, right, where there's Cheerios or another product next to Amazonos or whatever that, that hypothetical is. But I don't actually think that there's a, a challenge. That if anything, I would say that it's a recognition of that brand power, that it would force and cause companies to put forward their own versions of those products. I don't see the staying power of brands going anywhere. It'll just it'll be on mm -hmm. the, the consumer package goods companies also to recognize where are consumers headed? What are the trends? What are the motivations? What are the things that they're looking for from products, whether that's enhanced transparency, use of certain ingredients or products? It's just staying uh, on top of where consumers are at. And I think that that's also one of the hallmarks of the, the CPG industry is that in addition to being brand makers, they are product innovators. They are the ones that roll out the hip new thing or the, the cool new product, and they're very much willing to experiment. And uh, I think mm -hmm. what you'll also continue to see is, I mentioned, the availability of data and the ability to personalize products or to really be specific and, and targeted to who you're reaching. Even while you see some companies, there's this degree of skew optimization that you saw over the course of the pandemic. You're also seeing companies, I think, be really adept at understanding different segments of the marketplace, what people want, 
again, that's all a testament, I think, to the power of, of the brands yeah, that are behind those products. You certainly see a lot of creativity on the part of brands today. For one thing, there's been a surge of advertising, which came as kind of a surprise to to observers that brands would undertake such a thing, but also innovative nature of packaging and new products, as you point out. So it sounds like brands are really making an effort to stay relevant, uh, <laughs> based on what you're, what you're saying. I'm also wondering, though, the sensitivity to which they are now focusing in on mitigating risk as they look back on just how they were affected by the, the pandemic and the sourcing strategies they followed up to this time. Do you think that brands are going to take a fresh look at how they source, where they make product and the like in order to mitigate the risk of being caught out at the next big pandemic or for that matter, any kind of disruption? I think that that's absolutely a part of that resiliency playbook, if you will, looking at not just your your tier two or your tier three suppliers, but really taking that comprehensive audit approach to how you do business, where you're obtaining product, are there workarounds or are there alternatives that you might not have currently been using? I do think that it's important to note that the consumer packaged goods industry is, especially if you look at U.S. production, U.S. consumption, there is a degree of insulation there that I think is somewhat unique among the industry in the sense that there is already to today uh, a huge domestic manufacturing presence, a significant domestic sourcing. And so there is some resiliency that's sort of baked into that by virtue of, of where they're at as opposed to, I think, certain other industries that might be more reliant on foreign supply chains, let's just say like semiconductors, for example, or something like that, where there's other risks maybe in play, and then a more dramatic need to consider, well, how do you accelerate domestic manufacturing? In the CPG manufacturing states, I, I would say that some of the greatest risks are less around the immediate sourcing things and more some of these systemic issues. I mentioned the driver uh, driver shortage. I mentioned the scarcity of trained supply chain labor, not just for the high-end tech jobs, but also even just basic manufacturing labor, uh, technical trades, whether it's the electrician or the plumber, whoever it is like that's involved in that, in that whole process. All of these pieces need to be in place for the supply chain to be functioning at an optimal level. And I think that one of the, and this goes back to your sort of original question around the, the executive order, the intent of government policy, things like that. We have to solve some of those long-term systemic issues if we're going to really have a resilient supply chain going forward. The private sector, I think, does an admirable job at responding, patching things up, working overtime, which is something that you, you certainly saw during the pandemic. But there's a reckoning at some point, right? You can only stretch things so far. You can only use automation. There's other tools at folks' disposal, but there still has to be that those underpinnings. And you have to solve those long-term. Tom Madrecki of the Consumer Brands Association, I want to thank you so much for spending time with me to talk about some of the big concerns and challenges that consumer brands and the CPG industry is facing today, both from a private sector standpoint as well as government policy. Thanks very much for your insights. Really appreciate it. Happy to contribute. Always welcome the conversation. That was my conversation with Tom Madrecki of the Consumer Brands Association, talking about how we can strengthen CPG supply chains. We're online at www.supplychainbrain.com, where we post a new episode of this podcast for streaming or downloading every Friday. You can also read my Think Tank blog, watch thousands of videos, and access all of our other content, including the digital edition of our magazine. Look for us on Facebook and LinkedIn. Follow us on Twitter, at SCBrain, and also watch videos on our YouTube channel. 
You can also download or subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts. Got any comments or suggestions on this or any episode? Email me at rbowman at supplychainbrain.com. Stay well and see you next time.